You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is Medusa's first and only English-language podcast, so please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to The Naked Pravda, a podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. Regularly, I am your host, Kevin Rothrock, that's who I am, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. But today you'll be hearing from my co-pilot, Medusa News Editor Hilak Cohen, who put together something I've been teasing in my closing remarks on this podcast for months, a show about queer Russian language science fiction looking at what space ethics and tech dystopias can tell us about LGBTQ activism and more in the Russian-speaking world. As much of the world is still trying to make sense of the coronavirus and all the hell it's unleashed, Hila makes the reasonable point that science fiction might be the perfect thing for our weary minds. Isn't this just what we need? A trip to other planets? A trip to other worlds? Maybe a new look at... The present, and maybe even the future, if one happens to exist. So here's one for you. A different planet, a different future. Welcome to Omai, Madame Ambassador Jenry Hovak. The alien interrupted my thoughts. Without skipping a beat, I replied, And good health to you, beautiful. I was born this way, a shameless lesbian. Ever since it became clear that I would have to be physically present on the planet of Omai, it had been my personal goal to sleep with as many of their famously gorgeous women as possible. There were rumors that we were all lesbians. I think my brothers would have understood had they known about my plans. After all, it wasn't exactly easy to get hold of women on Earth. There weren't many left, and those that remained had mostly already been distributed amongst the domains. Those who grew up in ours were either too young or already related to me. I might be a lesbian, but I'm not so craven as to seduce them. I had to get by as best I could, making rare visits to the wars who were residents of the wild zone or engaging in self-care. Luckily, my father had some antique pictures and videos of sordid delights from before the exodus, so I could indulge my fantasies at will. Of course, I had other, less prosaic intentions. Along the way, I was planning on saving the Earth and our colonies from the threat of annihilation by these foolish women. I might be a lesbian, but my father is a big player in the government, and I was his right hand. We'd heard rumors that Omai scientists had discovered element 174. After what almost happened on Mars nine years ago, when we tried to synthesize the element ourselves, we didn't want to leave the fate of the galaxy in the hands of these broads. And we had other plans, of course, you know, to enslave these bratty chicks and use their science, which was apparently quite advanced, for the good of old Mother Earth. If we could manage it, that is. That was Sinat Sultanalieva reading from her short story, Element 174. And uh, her voice was coming to you all from self-isolation in Tsukuba, Japan, where Sultanalieva is a PhD candidate. But the story of the story is a lot more complicated than that. And we're going to follow its path and the path of stories like it during this episode. 
And what I mean by complicated is that even though Sayinath was sitting in Japan when she was reading us this story, the translation is by Lesia Miata and Samuel Goff, and it was done for a UK publication, the Calvert Journal, in April 2018. Meanwhile, the story itself was originally published in Russian, but not in Russia, rather in Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan. And specifically, the story was done for a collection of queer and feminist science fiction. Okay, so queer and feminist science fiction from Bishkek. Not something that you see in English every day, but it is part of a broader trend and one that has a lot of political implications. Basically, if you take a look around, you can see a lot of Russian-speaking activists, artists, and just political thinkers using science fiction or just speculative fiction, anything that kind of takes a concept or takes an idea that's a bit out of this world and makes something out of it. And people are using these concepts both to reimagine our current world and to imagine new ones. I felt powerless, I guess, with the things that were happening in Kyrgyzstan. Um, and, I, and it just seemed like it's something that, you know, might happen. But I also wanted uh, to write a story um, of how we might we might reclaim it back, like reclaim um, basically the planet. Who's we? We, the queer feminists. <laughs> now, you might be wondering, what exactly does this have to do with Medusa's news coverage? And the answer is that we cover... LGBTQ issues on a really regular basis. And there's a certain common thread in those stories that rarely gets drawn out. Of course, just unavoidably, there's a lot of suffering in these stories and there's a lot of loneliness. But what often strikes me most as an editor and translator are the really creative and imaginative strategies of survival. So whether we're talking about stories involving a Russian trans man who is working to get his grandmother on his side, whether we're talking about uh, Russians living in rural communities, which is a somewhat unimaginable situation for a queer person, but they're imagining and living it every day, whether we're talking about Russians who are non-binary and figuring out how to use a language that is really strictly gendered to talk about themselves, what we're really talking about is a lot of imagination and a lot of creativity in these day-to-day -day survival situations. And this episode is going to look at that kind of imaginative survival at its most distilled in science fiction. In Russia, because Russia is moving quite fast towards this authoritarian model, uh, the feedback loop between the leadership and the population is not functioning perfectly well. And that is why uh, all this radical art and literature activism is uh, filling in this gap. That's Mikhail Suslov, an assistant professor of Russian history and politics at the University of Copenhagen. Suslov is actually an expert in Russian conservatism and right-wing ideologies, which is exactly why I wanted to talk to him. See, the thing is that while there is queer and left-wing science fiction in Russian, the bulk of the science fiction industry today is actually ideologically conservative. And not just that, it often has direct institutional ties to pro-Kremlin think tanks and the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, we have uh, several think tanks, for example, um, the Russian Institute for Strategic Research, which which is uh, affiliated with the administration of the Russian president. And this think tank 
hosted, up to quite recently, it hosted many writers, professional writers of science fiction. They are um, somehow affiliated with the think tanks. And these think tanks are basically supplying the Kremlin with uh, appropriate ideology today. Uh, Another connection is via the Russian Orthodox Church, because uh, it's a fairly interesting phenomenon of the Orthodox science fiction. And uh, we have uh, not that many, but a handful of uh, writers of science fiction who are either priests of the Russian Orthodox Church or who are very actively engaged into the church life. And uh, they they produce science fiction of, of this religious stamp, of this religious kind. I think for a lot of folks... Of course, that, that religious connection might be unexpected, but then just generally, you talk about this tension between, or an apparent tension ideologically between conservatism and science fiction. And then, of course, there's this concrete tension that comes up in, in Soviet history where science fiction is typically in, in this sort of dissident position. So, yeah. So how, how do you, as an academic, resolve that paradox? So how does this ideological interface between conservatism and science fiction in Russian today come to be? Uh, in my interpretation, Russian conservatism is always and necessarily utopian. This is the specifically Russian f- ideological phenomenon. Uh, in the canonical, like, European or Western context, conservatism is about preservation of the status quo and uh, the community's identity. In Russia, however, because of Peter the Great's reforms in the 18th century, uh, the, the country is defined not by the stability of its identity, by, but by rupture in its identity. So there is basically nothing to conserve. So the Russian conservatism comes down to the drive to restore the distant past. And that is, that is at this juncture, conservatism becomes utopian. So you, you see my point. So uh, it's, it's not about preservation of the status quo. It's about restoration of some imaginary past. And that is why um, the, the science fiction, the genre of science fiction and utopia becomes the most important instrument or f- form for expressing conservative ideology. So what does all this stuff about conservative science fiction mean for queer and feminist science fiction in Russian? Well, Dr. Suslov told me that these sort of pulpy, lowbrow books that are imagining Russia's imperial return to might or um, its sort of religious utopia, that they're basically imagining these alternatives to a perceived European liberal hegemony. And fictional as all this is, these groups are, you know, really close to the Kremlin politically, and that means their alternatives to the present world are worth paying attention to. And basically, for queer and feminist writers, it's it's what they're up against in this genre. And that's a lot. So um, Dr. Suslov said that about 700 books per year are produced in this uh, science fiction genre. And the content of them is also like 
a pretty direct response to what queer activists are trying to do in a lot of cases. I can probably point at uh, a uh, short story by Chaplin, because Chaplin was pretty important uh, priest, basically the voice of the Russian Orthodox Church during many years. Mm -hmm. And quite recently deceased at this point. Yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. And, uh, and he published a short story, which is called Masho and the Bears. And he's using this Masho as the neutral gender with this ending O, not, not Masha, the female name, but Masho, the neutral name. And uh, I think that it really nicely sums up the main points of this conservative slash religious science fiction. The story is basically about the, um, the Moscow-located liberal intelligentsia, all these hipsters and yuppies who live in the capital. And uh, there is the internal eternal war between Moscow and the rest of Russia. And Moscow is besieged by, uh, by the common, simple Russian people who are called bears. And Masha is one of the protagonists from this besieged Moscow, one of these liberal uh, intellectuals, let's put it like that. And he is captured by the bears. And bears tend to be a kind of normal Russian people who religiously observe gender roles. They have... Uh, males, they have men who are really masculine, they have women who are really very feminine, and Masho gradually transformed into back to that normalcy, according to Chaplin. So, back to Bishkek. While Civil or Chaplin, the cleric liberals love to hate, is writing Masho and the Bears in Moscow, a group of artists and activists, including Sinatsulkanalieva, who was reading to us earlier, um, they're taking part in this collective called Shtab. That stands for the School of Theory and Activism in Bishkek, but it also means headquarters in Russian. So Georgi Mamedov and Oksana Shatalova, two uh, major activists and scholars who are uh, involved in coordinating this group, they edit this anthology that I mentioned earlier. And the title of the anthology is Savsem Drugie. On a literal level, that means completely different, but Georgi Mamedov, who spoke with me from Bishkek, said he prefers the translation entirely other. As activists, as politically engaged people, we are fighting daily yeah, with you know different problems and issues. But what do we fight for? That was somehow the question that we want that we wanted the activists to reflect on. What what actually do we want to achieve at the end? It might be not a very clear idea, but what is that world that we fight for? And we saw that probably the best container for this kind of reflection or the space for, would be science fiction. So in the face of a general political ideology that is a lot closer to chaplains than their own, Mamedov and Shatalova are leading this group of writers in putting together this anthology of fiction where the worlds involved are really unexpected and out there. So, for example, there is a piece in Savsem Drugia that is actually structured like a Wikipedia article with the graphics to match. And it's about how these polymerized plants have been found to be... Um, 
like alive and conscious and contributing actively basically to human philosophy, human science, and humans ultimately trying to liberate these plants. And it's got some interesting resonances with real world colonialism. There's also a brief, brief slice of a graphic novel in the collection that's based on actual events of um, the enslavement of grocery store workers in the Russian-speaking world. And in this case, the workers are able to steal people's white faces in order to escape. And they have this brief moment of struggle where a policeman notices that their hands are, in fact, of a darker color. And then there's... Element 174 by Well, um, so Element 174 is this um, story um, of a future, of a possible future, um, 500 years from now, um, where fe- queer feminists or feminists in general have separated from the uh, earth that's gone really, 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 really wrong. <laughs> um And it's a story of how uh, representatives of the two sort of, uh, well, cultures or civilizations even, you might say, how they uh, meet and how they learn from each other. Um, so I'm not going to give the spoilers. <laughs> so who who is in the story and what sort of crystallizes or provides a lens onto this future world for us so the the, the main characters uh, there are two main uh, characters um well, well basically uh, representatives um of the two uh, worlds um so the first one uh, and basically the story is told from the point of view of uh, ambassador Jenry. Um, um, or, and, uh, that's where the translation doesn't really do it, uh, justice because in Russian, I, uh, like in Russian, which I, um, wrote the story originally, um, there's a lot of sort of, uh, playing with the feminatives. Um, and it's a very big issue, um, in the sort of, um, uh, Russian speaking, uh, world right now, whether we should add the feminatives to the words or not. Uh, but anyways, she's the uh, ambassador from Earth, and her name is Jenry. And the other character is uh, the representative from the world of Omai, uh, and her name is Aili. And so she's sort of like the, um, you could say, like the conductor of um, Jenry in, into the world of Omai. And in this case, the feminatives, we're talking about things that in English are, for example, actress versus actor. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so yes. in this case, ambassador. I don't know <laughs> what the feminative would be in English for ambassador. But in any case, you've got this storyline, a very personal storyline that's unfolding between Jenry and Eileen. Specifically, uh, well, I don't know. Would you call it a love story? I probably would. <laughs> Um, a strange love story or something. Well, I think it's more than a love story, sort of, or I would say it's a hybrid love story or something like that, because it's definitely not an outright sort of a romance story. It's not because both sides have their own sort of ulterior motives. But at the same time, there is attraction. The political motivations behind Mamedov and Sultan Aliyev's writing and editing are really heavily based in their local context, but I also wanted to know where the influences came from for this kind of writing. Jenri actually <laughs> is a name that I chose specifically because it sounds a little bit like Jenli uh, Ai from Ursula Le Guin's uh, Left Hand of Darkness. This is Kevin here barging in again. I wanted to clarify here that The Left Hand of Darkness is a novel, an American sci-fi novel from the late 60s. It follows natives of fictional planets 
they're going around, they're doing stuff. But the, the, the thing to understand here is that the story revolves around planets, particularly one planet where the culture is ambisexual. There's no fixed sex. And this fact has, you know, strong influence on the culture of this planet, and it creates a barrier for one of the main characters. And this book is uh, considered to be one of the first among the genre now known as feminist science fiction, and it has a famous examination of androgyny. Because she's also like the, this ambassador that's going to this strange new world, and she, it's her position, and she's sort of like describing everything. So I, <laughs> I just changed one letter, and I, I mean, it, I really wanted it to be sort of like an homage to the to my favorite ever, ever, ever sci-fi novel. Another influence that Aliyeva cited, Margaret Atwood. But that doesn't mean that her writing is just pulling and pushing towards the West. I really don't like stories that are written by, say, writers, um, I don't know, Kyrgyz writers or Russian writers, for that matter, even, who um, uh, give uh, American names or like European names to their characters or like Christopher went there. And I don't know. And Laura said, Oh, Jessica, why are you doing this? And all in Russian or in Kyrgyz. And I'm like, that's just false. I mean, it's just just fake. How are you writing this? But the political implications of decisions like these get real serious real fast. Here's Mamiadov again. And this that was an important actually uh, aspect for the entire book, that a lot of stories turn to this uh, idea of uh, kind of worlds going separate. It's, it was a kind of a red thread in the book, which was uh, surprising to us as editors. Because, and I think it's politically also important to maybe draw attention to this, because the the imperative for the book was very constructive. So how can we imagine the world, uh, or a better world, or the world for which we fight? But actually, a lot of stories talk about this sort of breakup of the worlds as the only solution. One example of this is a story by Oksana Shatalova, who was the co-editor for the volume. The story is called A Different Dimension or Another Dimension. And it's about these two worlds that are actually physically adjacent on Earth, but their inhabitants can't see or interact with each other because they're wearing mutually exclusive sets of augmented reality glasses, essentially. And there's one world that's called heaven or paradise, which is kind of the patriarchal, metastasizing version of what we've gotten now. And then there's hell, which is the queer utopia. And there's a sense of total separation between the two worlds. That feeling that separation is inevitable is made all the more real by actual political events. So it just so happened that Georgiana had this conversation on March 9th, and March 8th is International Women's Day. Now in Bishkek, on March 8th, there was a rally, a feminist rally, to mark the holiday, basically, and Georgi was there. And the rally was attacked by basically this band of people in masks, at which point police began arresting the feminists who had gathered as opposed to these anonymous attackers. Well, like yesterday, for example, during this uh, 8th of March rally, I was overwhelmed with this feeling that the two worlds are clashing, you know, and there is no way to for us to connect with those who already are not even our opponents, but our enemies who come there to beat us uh, in alliance with the police. And I have the, that maybe this is uh, this this feeling of the radical breakup is becoming more and more kind of 
present politically. And as I said, there are a number of, of stories in the book that constantly sort of reflect on this. On this, on this radical split. I'm actually really glad that you brought this up because I, I also noticed this trend, uh, the separatism that runs through the book. And what really surprised me next was what for me felt like a sharp contrast between the queer separatism that's expressed in the collection at numerous points and the fact that when I hear, uh, for example, the phrase queer feminist in Russian, um, that, to me, I immediately think if someone is identifying as a, a queer feminist, they're probably very politically engaged. Like, in, in terms of any label that someone could apply to themselves politically, um, queer feminist is one that, you know, it seems like folks who identify with that term are very likely to go to public protests or rallies, very likely to engage in activist art, very likely to engage basically with the society around them. And that made me really curious. Like, What do you make of the fact that um, this book is imagining total separation and yet people who identify with these terms continue to engage really intensively with the society around them? Like, It seems as though in real life, the trend is is going in almost the opposite direction. Like these attempts to uh, engage and have dialogue are continuing. Well, it's uh, it's an interesting point and observation because uh, indeed uh, the, the book somehow captures this very paradoxical maybe reality in which we find ourselves because we understand as leftists and as queer or as feminist individuals, we're critical enough to understand that separatism is not an answer and that a lot of these... Uh, the differences with which we have to deal, yeah, or that are brought to us, are somehow ideologically manipulated. And this claims that uh, everyone around is so conservative and patriarchal, and that uh, us, uh, queer, feminist, uh, leftist, is just a you know a minority of perverts who do not uh, fit with the rest of the society. That's of course. Uh, uh, an ideological, you know, uh, crap, let me put it this way, yeah? Because even in, in that event uh, that took place yesterday, we did not deal with any kind of large society. We, 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 we dealt with an organized mob uh, of provocateurs, yeah, who do not in any way stand as a representatives of uh, society with traditional values. In no way. That's the thing. Uh, so... Having this realization and understanding this, uh, that's what drives people to be engaged with the community and to be politically active and not to sort of escape in, you know, in some, some way, yeah, physically or uh, intellectually. For myself and Georgi, the next step in thinking through this dynamic was to think about what happens if there is separation, whether in fictional worlds or in the real world. So let's say you have a collective like Stab, or let's say you have this hell, this queer utopia in Oksana Shatalova's story. What happens when there are people who are born outside that world? Because um, in the story, that's exactly what happens. You have this older sister, her name is Joy, and she has escaped heaven and gone to hell. Um, but her younger sister, Diligence, is still in heaven. And um, we were talking about how in the Russian-speaking world, you get these sorts of situations. There are these queer communities, but then there are individuals who are born outside them and who may not have a way to find them. 
Um, and that sort of necessitates continued interaction between these two worlds. Um, and that can be complicated. It means that any kind of separation, whether you're on a different planet or you're just in a different building or a different city, um, there's this continued drive for engagement. And Georgi really leaned into that, really leaned into the idea that despite the fact that your opponents may be interested literally just in beating you up or worse, the only route forward is engagement and separatism isn't viable. When I sort of posed this question to her response was actually a little different. So yeah, so the idea was that I really wanted to use this position of the person, of, of, of the sort of the demographic that I don't personally have a lot in my, in my uh, circles or environment. Um, yeah, but I guess I just really wanted to appeal to them to sort of like... Um, I think what I'm trying to say is that I was trying to use Jenry as sort of like this Trojan horse in a way, which she's using, uh, which she's being as a character in the story, but also as my Trojan horse to get into the, you know, uh, the mindsets of these people to say, hey, look, this is this character who is just like you guys and girls. She totally hates feminists. She's just lesbian. Okay, but that's relatable. She she wants to be a man, right? You guys can understand that because being a man is so cool, right? So you get that point. So even guys will be like, oh yeah, gender is our girl or like she's the man or whatever. So they kind of go with her on this journey. And the idea is, and hopefully I can pull this off in the next two sections, is that through her, I'm able to change their uh, mindsets as well, because she hopefully undergoes certain <laughs> developmental arcs. <laughs> on the surface, these are stories. But in reality, these questions, do you engage with people who would rather see you dead? Do you shelter in place with the people who understand you? If so, how do you make sure that everyone who needs that protection can get it? All of these things are life and death questions for a lot of people on a day-to-day -day basis. And these conversations about science fiction crystallized exactly how hard that decision-making is for me in a way that even some of our stories um, hadn't been able to. There's a whole lot more to talk about in this area that we just couldn't cover in half an hour. There are queer poets writing in Russian in Moscow and St. Petersburg, in Lviv, Ukraine, in Israel, in San Pedro, Belize, all kinds of places who are using sci-fi elements in their poetry or in their writing generally to answer these questions and many others in totally different ways. There are loads of experts on Russian sci-fi who are doing amazing work uh, who we weren't able to have on the podcast today. So if this struck your interest, if you want to know more about how science fiction reflects on politics in the Rusphone world today, here are a couple of titles and names to jot down. And Indita Banerjee has been doing work on this area for many years and also has a book out pretty recently within the last couple and Mikhail Suslov, who was our first guest today, edited, co-edited with uh, Perane Bodin, a volume called The Post-Soviet Politics of Utopia. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, a podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. 
On today's show, Medusa News Editor Hila Cohen looked at queer Russian language science fiction and how some activists are turning to this genre to map out a political future in difficult times. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our first English language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thanks for listening and come back soon.